Well, we're beginning a, a new series today. Uh, it's going to last uh, five, maybe six weeks after this morning's message. I thought, man, yeah, maybe six. We're talking about spiritual warfare, and our, our title this morning is His Infernal Majesty. His Infernal Majesty. We're talking about uh, Lucifer, uh, Satan, the devil. Uh, we're talking about his origins. We're talking about his current status and uh, where he is personally headed in, uh, in his life. Uh, how many of you know that battles win wars? Successful battles win wars. Battles topple thrones, and, and they elevate others. Battles redraw borders and, and realign loyalties. Battles in every age of history have been instrumental in shaping the future of entire civilizations, cultures, religions, nations, states, families, individuals. And, and in that vein, we, we might think of famous battles with names of places like Waterloo, Bannockburn, Stirling Bridge, Hastings, York, uh, Gettysburg, Stalingrad, Quezon, Iwo Jima, Midway, Guadalcanal, Inchon, Quezon, Fallujah, Baghdad, Mosul. But of all the battles that have been engaged in human history, none can compare to the, the battle in which every believer in Jesus Christ is presently engaged. The most powerful forces in our world are, are unseen forces. And we live our lives largely, if not in some cases entirely, unaware, unaware of the intense spiritual battles that are raging in the heavenly realms. Uh, Abram Kuyper wrote that if once the curtain was pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. It is not here, but it is there. That is where the real conflict is waged. And our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. Well, what is spiritual warfare? There could be a variety of definitions. Here's one. Spiritual warfare is cosmic conflict in the invisible spiritual realm. Spiritual warfare is cosmic conflict in the invisible spiritual realm. And it is the basis for all conflict in the visible, material, or physical realm. Unless we understand it properly, the battle, uh, unless we understand properly the battle in the spiritual realm, we cannot address its implications for our daily lives in the material realm. See, no matter what's going on in, in your life, in the life of your family this morning, your, your willingness to respond appropriately to God's directives regarding what you cannot see will determine your ability to experience victory in what you can see. What we're going to see as we move through this series is that we are not fighting this battle for victory, but instead we are fighting it from victory. Did you hear me? We're not fighting this battle for victory. We're fighting it from victory. Did you hear me? I don't think you heard me. Let me say that again. We are not fighting this battle for victory. We are fighting this battle from victory. Amen. Some of you are starting to catch on. We are not fighting this battle for victory. We are fighting it from victory. What Jesus Christ has already achieved has determined the final outcome, the end result. But, but you and I still have to put on the armor of God, which we're going to learn about in the coming weeks, and learn to wield the weapons of spiritual warfare, weapons that have divine power. And this series is, is about helping each of us then to take advantage of the victory that Jesus Christ has already won for us in the invisible spiritual realm so that we can see it worked out in the visible material realm in our personal lives, in our families, and in the church. 
Now, why should we study a topic like this at the beginning of a new year? Why should we as a church talk about spiritual battle in 2018? And I think it's, it's, it's at least this, that we as a church are making some big decisions right now that will affect the future of our church, where we go. And we believe that, that God called us into this community to see people come to personal faith in Jesus Christ who don't know him yet. I saw a quote the other day, and I've been reflecting on it. I posted it on Facebook. Uh, Not mine, it's from Louis Giglio. He said, the unfinished work of the church, the unfinished work of the church is to make sure that everyone in the world gets to hear the message of the finished work of the cross. That's what we're about. And and so any time God's people get serious about taking back ground that has been ceded to the enemy... The enemy intensifies the battle. And, and, and just very honestly and very humbly, we can expect this year for some crazy stuff to happen. And I'm asking you, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you very seriously. This is not play, this is war. I'm asking you to be very alert to the movements of the enemy in your life, in our church, in our relationships, in our witness to the community. Please, please be alert. Be alert especially to divisiveness because that's one of the ways, and we're going to see in, in uh, next week, that, that Satan really loves to attack the church. Well, you're going to want to take notes this morning. I can promise you, uh, if you didn't get a, a program, get one now. You're saying to yourself, I'm not going to get up and get one. It'll be embarrassing. We're not that kind of church. Go ahead and get one. In fact, uh, will somebody grab some? Bill will grab some. If you'll raise your hand right now, you, you want to take notes this morning and you want to have your Bible open. Um, this is going to be one of those sermons where, that's like uh, getting a drink from a fire hydrant where you get, you get more on you than in you. And, and, and so maybe if you take some notes, you can scrape up the stuff that just got on you and get it in you during the week. So uh, take out a pen, open your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, they're in the aisles. Uh, if you don't own a Bible and would like to take one home, you can do that and you can tell your friends you stole a Bible from a church. But open your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 28. Go ahead and turn there. Ezekiel chapter 28. If you don't know where that is, in the front of your Bible, there will be a table of contents. The book of Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 12. In verses 12 through 18 of Ezekiel 28, God addresses his infernal majesty, the one we know as Lucifer or Satan or the devil. And as we listen in, we learn a great deal about who he is, where he came from, how he fell from heaven. So follow along in your Bible as I read. Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire." Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Now, you may know, and you may be looking at your Bible, and you may be seeing a title that says, Lament, 
to or over the king of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. City king, and in the, in the early part of this chapter, there is an address of God through the prophet Isaiah to the king of Tyre. But here at verse 12, the language change, changes. And there are very few evangelical, biblical scholars who don't see in this statement an address directly to Satan himself. In a minute, we're going to read another passage in Isaiah 14. And and what precedes that is a, a prophecy, a lament, an oracle to the king of Babylon. But there again, the language changes, and it's very clear that that God then is speaking to Lucifer. He's speaking to Satan. So understand that as we read this, what's being expressed is there is the, the king, there is the material realm in which he is operating, but behind the throne is the power, is the demonic power that's driving the activity of that king. What happens in the spiritual realm is expressed in the material realm. What happens in heaven gets expressed on earth. So let's look at his person, the person of Lucifer or Satan. Note, first of all, in verses 13 and 15, that Satan is a created being. Please understand, Satan is a created being. He is not equal to God though many people think of him that way and wring their hands. He is not, as the Mormons falsely teach, the brother of Lucifer. That ain't no kind of God to worship. A a physical being. Whatever it is, right? Neither is he the yan to God's yin. We're not talking about some kind of cosmic duality. He, he never has been God's equal, nor will he ever be, although it is that to which he aspires, and it is that that he would like you to think. Because if he can make you think that he's as big as the big guy, he can keep you off balance. He can keep you in fear. He can keep you in worry. He can keep you in anxiety. Neither is he equal to God the Son, Jesus Christ. With regard to the supremacy of Christ, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and what? For him. All things were created through him and for him. So understand that Jesus was there when Satan was created. Far from being Satan's equal, God the Son is Satan's creator. And on that day, he was created in perfection. Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. You've never thought of him that way, have you? Because you think of him as uh, this, this guy in a red suit with horns and, you know, a pointed tail and a pitchfork running around in red pajamas, right? That's what you think of him. But a literal translation of that phrase, you or that statement, you were the signet of perfection would be, you sealed up the sum of perfection. In other words, if there had been a dictionary at that time, if you would look to the word perfection, you'd find Lucifer's picture next to it. He was the it angel. My parents' generation, they would say he was the cat's meow. He was cool, and he was beautiful, and he was 
wise. He was the very definition of perfection with no additional adjectives required. He was the wisest and the most beautiful of all the angelic beings. And in his character at his creation, he was blameless. Notice his position. He's described in verses 14 and 16 as an anointed guardian cherub. The cherubim are an order of angelic beings. In Isaiah's vision in chapter 6, he saw cherubim surrounding the throne of God. The cherubim had direct access to the very presence of God, which brings us to Lucifer's place. God says to him, you were in Eden, the garden of God. I placed you. In other words, God gets to decide where Satan gets to go. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire You walked. I don't know what that phrase, stones of fire, means exactly, but it sounds awesome to me. Walking among stones of fire in the presence of the holy God. Fire usually is a picture of purity in the Bible, refinement, holiness. The only place that phrase appears is here in Ezekiel 28. Well, notice then his perversion, his perversion. Ezekiel 28, again, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till, till, listen now, till unrighteousness was found in you. Till unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Well, that's a, that's a loaded statement, isn't it? By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Unrighteousness was found in you. What does that tell us? It tells us again, in another way, that angels are neither automatons nor robots. They are, they are not computerized. They are not just under God's absolute control. God created them with the distinguishing marks of personality, which include uh, intellect, emotions, and will, and will. Implicit in free will is permission to choose So when we read he corrupted his wisdom for the sake of his splendor, we see the initial consequence of the choice, the trade-off that Satan made. I am so beautiful. I am so powerful. And I'd, I'd trade wisdom for beauty and power. Isaiah 14 Turn there with me, 12 through 15, where we find this particular sin expounded, detailed. We read there in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning at verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, which is the name Lucifer means Day star, O Lucifer, O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But, but, you are brought down to Sheol, to the farthest reaches of the pit. Lucifer, day starts. Beautiful name, isn't it? I mean, it speaks to his beauty. It speaks to his majesty. It speaks to his power and his authority. Daystar. And we just saw in Ezekiel 28 that the root of Lucifer's sin was pride. It led to his downfall. Here in Isaiah 14, there are five statements that begin with the words, I will, that reveal to us the content of Lucifer's heart. Let's take a moment to examine each of them. First of all, in verse 13, I will ascend 
to heaven. I will ascend to heaven. Lucifer already had access to the very presence of God, right? Have we, have we understood that this morning? Lucifer already had access to the very presence of God. So it tells us that something else was on his mind. What he seems to be saying is that he would not merely visit there. He would not merely serve there. He would not merely worship there. What he wanted was to live there, to make the throne room of God his throne room, to make the throne room of God his home and and so that he would be seen and understood, recognized as equal to God. Again, in verse 13, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And the stars of God, in this case, is a reference to angels, as it often is in the Old Testament. As the highest of all the angelic beings, Lucifer already had authority over the, the, what the Bible says are myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands, literally a, a number that is too vast, too enormous to even count. Millions, perhaps trillions of angels. Lucifer had administrative authority over What higher place could there ever be? There was only one other higher place. And Lucifer said, I will raise my throne above the angels of God and thereby usurp the authority of God. Third, in verse 13, again, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly. In Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 and Psalm 48, verse 2, the Mount of Assembly is presented as the center of God's kingdom rule. And in both Old and New Testaments, it's associated with Christ's earthly rule from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So this seems to be a statement that Satan would, would seek to rule over all human affairs as well, thereby usurping the position of the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. As stars are a reference to angels and the Mount of Assembly is uh, a reference to a place of rule, clouds are associated in the Bible with the glory of God. For example, in Matthew 26, 63 to 64, Jesus is standing on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. He is just hours away from being crucified. And the high priest Caiaphas said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so which translates today as, that's right, baby. You got it. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Coming in majesty, coming in authority, coming as a ruler, coming in power, Coming to reign, Lucifer's glory was the reflected glory of his creator, but now he sets his sights on a glory that was equal to or greater than the glory of God. Verse 15, finally, I will make myself like the most high. And here we arrive at the climax of of Lucifer's prideful self-assertion, his defiance of, of the authority, the rule, the glory of God. And why did he on this occasion invoke this particular name for God, the Most High? Well, here's my take. See, that, that title for God, the Most High, means exactly what it says. He is the Most High. There is no one like him. It points to God as the, as the, 
the unique one who is supreme and who is sovereign over all, the creator, the Lord of the heavens and the earth. And Lucifer wanted God's glory. He wanted God's authority for himself. But no one can be like God and still let God be God, right? Am I right? Nor will God allow it. Notice Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. You don't need to turn there. Just, just listen. You can write the references down if you like. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. That's God speaking. That's the most high speaking. In Isaiah 43, verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. How come you guys aren't like standing up and cheering right now? God's frozen chosen sitting here in front of me. Holy moly. All right, maybe you'll like this better. Let's talk about his punishment. Isaiah 14, again, 12 through 15, how, are you, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you're cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Drop down to verse 15, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Notice this, notice, notice this descent. Fallen from heaven, fallen from heaven, cut down to the ground, it says in the ESV that I'm reading from, is literally the earth cut down to the earth. What happened when that took place? God gave to Lucifer, he gave to now Satan, no longer Lucifer, now Satan, perverted character, perverted purpose. God gave to Satan authority over the earth. The Bible talks about him as the prince of this world, the ruler of this world. 1 John 5, 19, the apostle John said, we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Literal translation is it lies in his lap. So you wonder, you look around, and you say, why are things so screwed up in this world? See, would you please allow this to transform your expectations? Things are screwed up here. We got a screwed up ruler. I'm not talking about our president. I'm not talking about anybody's president. We got a screwed up ruler who's messing up our whole lives. He is, he is the power behind all that we see. fallen from heaven, cut down to the earth, then finally brought down to Sheol, the place of the dead, the far reaches, the, the most extreme corner of the pit. Revelation 20.10 says this, the devil, there's war, war going on in heaven, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's his destiny. That's, that, that's, where, it's, that's where it's going. That's what's coming for him. You're still not cheering. Go home and pray. Well, let's talk about his posse. I know that's lame, but I needed another P. Except <laughs> the awful angst of aggressive alliteration. 
Ezekiel 28.18 says, By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. <laughs> what does that mean? That doesn't mean... That, that's actually a line you can use with your teenagers when they don't clean the room. <laughs> Sounds really authoritative. Son, you have profaned your sanctuaries. What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. I think, I think it means that, that Satan was at the office stirring up the employees against the boss. That in the heavenly realms, Lucifer, having chosen to rebel, was going to take some folks with him. He was going to take some of those angels with him. He was inciting rebellion in God's sanctuary in the place of his dwelling. Revelation 12, 7 through 9 tells us how that happened. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. You're going to cheer yet? I don't know. And, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. <laughs> there you are. They were thrown down. Revelation 12 verse 4 says that his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. Again, a reference to angels. One third of whatever that astronomical number of angels that God created is, one third of them went with Lucifer, cast down to the earth, hell's angels. Ever wondered what a demon is? It's not a little fairy or a little leprechaun or a little whatever. A demon is a fallen angel. They're powerful beings. You sometimes hear people say, well, Satan's really been after me. I say, no, he hasn't. You're not that big a fish. Because he, he's got people that, that can deal with you. In fact, uh, my understanding as, I've, as I read scripture is that each of us have some angels that are studying us personally, some demons. That's another conversation. Well, why is there spiritual warfare? If Satan's, if Satan's been cast down, if, he's, if his defeat is sure, why is there spiritual warfare? My dad occasionally used an expression that went like this. It was all over but the shouting, right? It was all over but the shouting. I have no idea whatsoever about where that expression came from. Uh, I loved some of my dad's and my granddad's expressions, wish they were here to kind of write them up a little bit. But, but however, and to whatever circumstances it was applied, I understood its meaning, which is that the essential action has been completed. The essential action has been completed, and anything else that happens is just reaction. It's just reaction. And with regard to the relationship of God and Satan, we need to understand that it's all over but the shouting. Throughout the Old Testament and into the New, there is an observable move-counter-move dynamic. Somewhere between, um, sometimes, sometime before Genesis 1-1, God created the angels. Job 38 talks about at the creation, all of the sons of God, shouting for joy as, as God laid the foundation of the earth. Sometime between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 3, Lucifer rebelled. God countered by booting Lucifer out of heaven, casting him down to earth, and when that happened, as we've seen, Lucifer took one-third of the angels with him. And then God created mankind in his own image. A little lower, Psalm 8 says, than the angels. 
Lucifer countered by, by deceiving the woman, enticing the man in the Garden of Eden so that Adam sinned, and in so doing, he forfeited his rule on the earth. God came back and provided physical covering to Adam and Eve and promised spiritual covering to them that would make it possible for them one day to be reconciled to God. God promised that the seed of the woman would one day come who would crush the serpent's head, the first promise of the coming Messiah. Satan countered by causing Adam and Eve's older son Cain to rise up and kill his younger brother Abel because Satan thought that it must be through Abel that the descendants would be named. Satan God countered by by giving Adam and Eve another son, Seth, whose name means substitute, through whom their descendants would be named. And Satan came back and he, he sent some of his angels to masquerade as human men and impregnate human women in a kind of a shotgun attempt to corrupt the bloodline by producing a hybrid demonic human race so that Messiah, no one like Messiah could ever be born in that bloodline. God took some of those who sinned in that way, took all of who sinned in that way, and he put them in utter darkness in a place called the abyss or Tartarus to await judgment at the end of time. Today they are still enchained in darkness. Their offspring, he drowned in a worldwide flood, saving only Noah and his family to repopulate the earth. Satan then countered by raising up an ungodly leader named Nimrod and sponsoring a rebellion against God on a plain called Shinar at a place called Babel. God countered by confusing the language of those people who were setting up camp in defiance to his command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that then he scattered across the whole earth. God then went to a place called Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia. He called an unknown guy named Abram and made a covenant with Abram that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky or the grains of sand on the beach and that through Abram's offspring, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. That is that the Messiah, the one who would come and crush the serpent's head would be among his countless offspring. Satan countered by imprisoning and enslaving Abraham's descendants for 400 years in Egypt. God raised up a man named Moses to deliver the Israelites from slavery and lead them to the land that God had promised to them and to their descendants. And so it went. Move, counter, move, punch, counter, punch. Until, until God made a move that Satan probably didn't ever really anticipate. God took upon himself human flesh and became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. Satan countered by enticing King Herod to put the baby Jesus to death. And so Herod ordered that all of the baby boys, two years of age and younger, in the vicinity of Bethlehem be killed God countered by sending an angel to to warn Joseph and Mary to take Jesus to Egypt to protect him from those who might try to kill him, which they did. Later in Jesus' life, Satan came back and, and tempted him to bow down and worship him. And Jesus countered him by addressing him with the living and authoritative word of God. And Satan left him until a, an opportune time, it says. And Satan's final counterpunch was to conspire inspired to arrange circumstances and attitudes and to move people to accomplish Jesus' crucifixion and death. And as he saw Jesus being nailed to that Roman cross, Satan must have thought, I've won. I've won. And I'm pretty sure he danced. I'm pretty sure the demons howled. They thought that they had won victory. But God's final move was one Satan never banked on, even though God was very clear in Scripture about what was coming. God raised Jesus from the dead, defeating forever the power of death and opening the way 
for the sin of every individual to be forgiven so that anyone and everyone who put their faith in what Christ accomplished at the cross could be forgiven of their sins and be reconciled eternally to God. And that includes you, and that includes me. Go ahead. Colossians 2, 13 through 25, the Apostle Paul said this about that, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Hear that? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. The writer of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 said, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he be set free, could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And at that point, it was all over but the shout. Amen? And that's what Satan does. Satan shouts, he roars. And that's why we're so unnerved by him. First Peter 5, 7, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I heard a teacher one time say, well, Satan is a, a toothless lion. You know, just kind of gumming all of his food. And I want you to know this morning that nothing could be further from the truth. Satan is still a formidable adversary. And he's still roaring, and he's still looking for someone to devour. And you look good to him. Billy Graham explained the reality of spiritual warfare in his book, Angels. We, we live in a perpetual battlefield, he wrote. The wars among the nations on earth are mere pop gun affairs compared to the fierceness of battle in the spiritual unseen world. This invisible spiritual conflict is waged around us incessantly and unremittingly. Where the Lord works, Satan's forces hinder. Where angel beings carry out divine directives, the devil's rage. All this comes about because the powers of darkness press their counterattack to recapture the ground held for the glory of God. Since the fall of Lucifer, that angel of light and son of the morning, there has been no respite in the bitter battle of the ages. Night and day, Lucifer, the master craftsman of the devices of darkness, labors Listen, to thwart God's plan of the ages. We're going to talk about that next week or the week following. We can find inscribed on every page of human history the consequences of the evil brought to fruition by the powers of darkness with the devil in charge. Satan never yields an inch, nor does he ever pause in his opposition to the plan of God to redeem the cosmos for his control. Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, and we're going to close with this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not struggle, we do not grapple against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'm going to do this very quickly because we're out of time. But notice this, we do not struggle, we do not struggle against flesh and blood. We think we do. We think we do. What does it mean? It means that people are not your problem. Employers think employees are the problem. Employees think the employer's the problem. Republicans think that the Democrats are the problem and the Democrats think that the Republicans are the problem and the Libertarians are confused. <laughs> Unions think management is the problem. People 
are not our problem. We think they are because they are what we can see and hear and smell and touch and taste. But listen to me, people are just the conduit. They are the fruit and not the root of the problem. Spiritual warfare is conflict in the invisible realm, the heavenly places that directly affects what is happening in the visible realm. Our struggle, our wrestling, our grappling, our conflict is with regimented demonic forces aligned with Satan who is now our adversary because we have aligned ourselves with the kingdom of light and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So let me fill in the blanks for those of you who are, you know, that way. We struggle against the rulers. We struggle against the rulers, high-ranking demons in a satanic hierarchy who hold power and rule over dominions entrusted to them. We struggle then with the authorities, Paul says. And here we're talking about demonic authorities who are in submission to the rulers. This is a regimented military ranking. We struggle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. This is kind of a cool word here. It's cosmocrator. I love that. Cosmocrator. Cosmic powers over this, this present. You hear what he's saying? This present darkness. We live in a dark world. This world is not the way God intended it. No matter how beautiful you think a sunset is, a mountain is, a river, a lake, a stream, the ocean, no matter how beautiful you think any of that is, it is not as beautiful as God initially created it. I'm preaching now. Finally, he says, we struggle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Demonic soldiers. I, I think these are maybe special forces. I don't know. Infantry. I don't know. Demonic soldiers operating to carry out the purposes of Satan in the spiritual realm. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about how to meet the enemy, how to engage the struggle, how to fight the good fight against the enemy of our souls. And I'll tell you right now that it is probably not what you think. And it's probably not what some of us have been taught about how to engage the enemy because some of what's being taught out there is pure foolishness and it's unbiblical and it's dangerous to you and to me. Let me close with this. We are not fighting this battle for victory. Would you say it with me? We are not fighting this battle for victory. We are fighting it from victory. We're fighting it from the victory of Jesus Christ at the cross. It's a serious war. Never make light of it. Never think it's not. Your enemy, your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you're it. We are it. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you seriously now, okay? I'm going to ask you to pray daily that God, by his spirit, would make you alert to the movements of the enemy in your life and in the life of our church, in the lives of your children, your family. Be alert. Because here's, here's, here's what I know. I know this is going to happen. I've, I've been through a period like the one we're entering into as a church in, in other churches. And I know that whenever God's people start moving out in a new initiative to claim new territory, to take it back from Satan, he doesn't like that. And he will attack and it won't feel like an attack. It'll feel like a warm blanket because he's smart. But he will begin to divide us and pick us off. And we have to have an absolutely determined commitment to unity as a church, to love for each other, to forgiveness and reconciliation. 
because he wants to divide us. And, that, and that'll be one of his first strategies. He's hearing me say this right now, so he's going, hmm, yeah, maybe I'll try something else. But would you pray, would you be alert to temptation in your own life, to things that you know are going to take you out of the game, take you out of the battle? Because you are needed, every one of you, every one of us together, cumulatively, to accomplish what God has in mind for us as a church in this year, to accomplish what he has in mind for you in this year. Some of you are, have been praying for your one, that, that one person that we just said last year, hey, let, let's just pray and see what God does. See if God will bring that person we identified, our one, bring them to Christ. I think most of us are still praying for that one. And he wants to mess that up too because he doesn't want to give up. This is serious, folks. I hope you'll be here for this whole series. Uh, so important. Let's pray together. God, here we are. We are your people, uh, redeemed by the blood of Christ, um, called uh, to be a part of your kingdom, uh, made citizens in your kingdom, adopted as your children. Um, Lord, we love you. We want to walk in obedience to you. We struggle in that. But uh, Lord, we thank you that our sins were forgiven once for all at the cross, that as we look to Jesus, that uh, every sin we have committed, every sin we are now committing, every sin we will commit is covered by the blood of Christ. And we are secure because uh, you hold us secure. And we, we don't hold on to you. You hold on to us. And as we come to the table this morning, would you remind us that uh, the, the elements represent the decisive action in this battle, that Christ died for our sins. He shed his blood for our sins at the cross. And Lord, let the table this morning be a table of rejoicing as well as a table of remembrance because the elements that we partake in are the symbols of Christ's victory on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.